0: Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp. I'm here on the New Books Network. This is a joint production of both the History Channel and the Archaeology Channel. We're here today with an Associate Professor of Classics at Cornell University, Kathleen Eilish Barrett. She has recently published a book, actually earlier this year, Domesticating Empire, Egyptian Landscapes in Pompeian Gardens again, published earlier this year by Oxford University Press. Welcome, Professor Barrett.
1: Thanks very much. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me on the show.
0: So first, before we dive into the questions, can you tell us a little bit about the cover and the uh, photograph that you took that is the cover of Domesticating Empire?
1: Sure, yes. So um, OUP allowed me to use one of my own photos uh, for the cover of the book. Um, And it's an image from... The uh, outdoor garden of um, one of the houses that I studied, the Casa del Efebo, um, shows uh, a fresco that's in some ways typical of what I'm looking at in th- this book, representations of Egyptian landscapes in Pompeian houses. So it shows um, a group of people sitting around um, on the banks of the Nile having a drinking party while below them, a crocodile looks somewhat ominously in their direction. So this represents one way that Pompeian audiences might imagine life in Egypt. And the book is about um, looking more closely at that imagery and what it would have done in people's houses, and how it would have intersected with their
0: lives. By way of introduction, what is the quoting you, material, material turn in your new approach to egyptiaca and nilotic material culture? And why does your study employ, again quoting you, contextual analysis of peristyles and gardens in approximately 79 CE Pompeii?
1: Well, by the material turn, I'm referring to a movement in the humanities and social sciences over the past couple of decades that aims to reconsider the ways we relate to the material world. Um, We can often be tempted to treat human history as though it were first and foremost the result of human decisions, as though people were operating in a vacuum independent of material constraints. And What people call the material turn reminds us that we're not actually brains floating in vats. The material conditions of our lives provide us with a whole array of affordances and constraints. And it's within those affordances and constraints that we can make decisions and take actions. So in the case of my book, I'm looking at how domestic material culture the physical things of Pompeian households would have impacted the lives of the people who lived with them. And more specifically, I'm focusing on objects and images that Roman consumers would have understood as making some kind of reference to Egypt. For example, paintings depicting Egyptian landscapes or statuettes imported from Egypt. And archaeologists and art historians often refer to such objects as Aegyptiaca, this is from a Latin word, Aegyptiacus, simply meaning Egyptian. And um, the other term that you mentioned, Nilotic, describes objects and images that depict the Nile River, which ancient Romans considered to be a famous natural marvel and which seems to have interested them greatly. And traditionally, scholarship has approached Roman Aegyptiaca mainly in terms of representation try to figure out what they represent. We identify fixed meanings for specific motifs like images of the Nile, and then try to determine what meaning that motif uh, would have conveyed to viewers. Um, So for example, some scholars have argued that paintings or mosaics depicting the Nile, which were common in Roman houses, especially in Pompeii, um, that they conveyed messages about religion, that the house owner worshiped Egyptian gods. Others have argued that what these images really meant was a statement about politics, that the house owner wanted to celebrate the Roman conquest of Egypt, which had taken place um, a few generations beforehand. Egypt was a Roman province at the time of Pompey's destruction. Um, But in my book, I want to... um, not ignore representation, but make it less an exclusive focus of study. I want to focus not only on what nilotic scenes represented, but also what they did in context. So how did these objects and images actually function within specific domestic environments? And how did they affect the activities and experiences of the people who owned them? And uh, for example, we find a lot of images of the Nile associated in Pompeian houses with real life fountains and water channels. Uh, which would have served partly to beautify the garden and also more practically to irrigate domestic crops. So I want to look at how that function shapes the impact of these images as they make the imagined Nile seem to come to life. Uh, As another example, a number of Pompeian houses contain paintings of people banqueting and partying on the riverbanks of the Nile, like the image that's on the cover of my book. And in some cases, these paintings are actually located on outdoor dining couches that are for banqueting and partying next to real life water channels. So when people looked at those paintings, they would have actually themselves been engaged in activities that are very like what the paintings depict. So my argument is we need to consider how that context frames the way these images communicate with their viewers. They're not just making an abstract statement about the Nile or Egypt or anything else. They're in context provoking viewers to consider the parallels between the depicted landscapes and their own immediate environment. In other words, my argument is that if we want to understand Roman images of Egypt, we can't just look at them out of context. When we encounter ancient wall paintings, mosaics, or statues in museums today, we may be tempted to view them the way that we've been trained to view more recent art, as self-contained, isolated images whose ideal viewing context is something like a modern museum. But that's not really the case for ancient art in their original settings. These works were part of much larger three-dimensional installations. They were designed to be touched, walked around, or in the case of the dining benches, even sat on. And those contexts matter. Um, so motifs didn't always have just one invariant meaning. And rather than making a single fixed statement about religion, politics, or anything else, I argue that Egyptian landscapes would have conveyed a pretty broad range of potential messages and interacted with their viewers in very different ways, depending on the material conditions of their display. Um, Over the past 20 years, there's been a huge increase in interest in post-colonial approaches to the Roman Empire. And among other things, this has fostered um, a very welcome proliferation of research on Roman Egyptiaca and Roman Egyptian encounters. And that's an important development. But there's still relatively little research that focuses on contextualizing Egyptian or Egyptian style material culture from specifically domestic settings. Um, Publications of domestic egyptiaca usually treat them as evidence either for the worship of Egyptian gods or so called egyptomania, but as various recent critiques have pointed out, those explanations can be a bit reductive. So I want to understand how these things actually functioned in their original domestic assemblages. And as for why gardens, when I first started this project, I actually had no idea it was going to be about gardens. But as I started looking into the context of nilotic landscapes in Roman houses, it became clear that they had a particular association with gardens. And that relationship then became something I needed to explore.
0: What is your cultural biography, quoting you, perspective on affordances and, again quoting you, emically recognizable functions, values, and meanings that ancient Pompeians could potentially have associated with nilotic imagery?
1: Well, one of the longstanding debates about Roman Nilotic has to do with their cultural origins. The question is, do these images derive from earlier Egyptian antecedents? Or are they totally new Roman creations that have nothing to do with what we might call authentic Egyptian culture? Um, And backing up, I think it would be useful for me to say a little bit about what these things actually look like. There are a range of motifs that frequently appear in Roman artistic representations of the Nile, and some of them often strike modern viewers as a little bizarre. Uh, The simplest scenes are pretty straightforward. They just depict the river itself with animals and plants that were distinctive to it, like crocodiles or hippos or lotuses. But um, many paintings and mosaics also depict human figures together with these plants and animals. And it's when the humans show up that things get a little bit more interesting. The humans in Nilotic scenes are often, though not always, portrayed as having the features of a chondroplastic dwarfism. They have proportionally large heads, short limbs, and stocky bodies. Um, they're also typically shown doing a range of particular stereotype behaviors. They're fighting with river animals. They're engaging in outdoor sex, dancing and playing music and performing religious rituals and shrines. And the, um, Sometimes bloody battles with river animals and the outdoor sex tend to be the features of these scenes that get the most attention these days. So the question is, who are these figures? Why do they engage in these particular activities, at least some of which, like public sex, would have been considered socially unacceptable for Roman viewers? And where do they come from? Do these images derive from some kind of Egyptian prototypes? Should we just interpret them as derogatory Roman parodies of Egyptians? Or is there something more complicated going on? And in the book, I argue that nilotic scenes do actually have precedence in both Egyptian and Greco-Roman art, but that they often function in very different ways from those earlier images. In other words, the artists who created these images were drawing on older models, but in the process, transforming them sometimes quite greatly. And when I'm tracing the lines of that transformation, I use the term cultural biography, which was coined by the anthropologist Igor Kapitov. When people talk about the cultural biography of an object, they're using the metaphor of a human lifespan to characterize that thing's changing roles over time, for example, from manufacture to disuse. So in the second chapter of the book, I apply that metaphor to the history of nilotic imagery. I look at the ways that nilotic motifs developed over time from the earliest appearances in Egyptian and classical art. To the forms they ultimately take in Roman Italy. And my goal is not in any way to suggest that the earliest uses are somehow the truest or most authoritative. Uh, for example, to say Nilotic imagery meant one thing in Bronze Age Egypt, so it must mean the exact same thing in first century Pompeii. Uh, instead, I'm trying to examine the ways that this long history of development imbued Nilotic imagery with many different possible cultural meanings. The psychologist James Gibson has talked about what he calls affordances, uh, by which he means the potential something has to facilitate various outcomes, actions, or behaviors. So for example, a pencil affords writing, but it also affords things like twirling between your fingers, flinging like a javelin if you want to, poking holes in soft objects, et cetera, et cetera. And in my book, rather than assigning one universally applicable interpretation to nilotic imagery, I prefer to talk about its affordances, the range of potential meanings that it could have had depending on context and depending on audience. I argue that partly as a result of its complex history, nilotic imagery developed a broad range of cultural associations, so it presented its viewers with multiple possible affordances for meaning. For example, Roman nilotic landscapes are often inhabited by dwarf-like figures, These recall uh, both Egyptian depictions of dwarfs as ritual dancers and cult attendants and Greco-Roman depictions of dwarfs as comic entertainment. And that said, differences in individual viewers' backgrounds and interests would have caused them to experience some of those affordances as more available than others. So somebody who knew a lot about Egyptian culture would probably have had a different perspective on these images than someone who didn't. And the context and framing of specific images would have primed viewers to perceive some associations as more relevant than others. So when nilotic uh, dwarf-like figures appear in paintings in a Roman temple to the Egyptian goddess Isis, those scenes might have come across really differently in that context than when they appear on a dining installation in somebody's private garden.
0: So can you provide um, even more specific examples of how cosmopolitan nilotic frescoes and mosaics in Pompeii engage extensively with older Egyptian antecedents in an eclectic, selective fashion, particularly, as you've already uh, alluded to, um, um, so-called pygmy, uh, cult attendants, and also sexual activities?
1: Sure. I argue that some aspects of nilotic landscapes, including those that you've mentioned, likely do draw on Egyptian sources, although they're certainly not just copying Egyptian material. The Roman artists are drawing on multiple models in a way that recombines and transforms those models. Um, So to illustrate that argument, I can talk about some of the Egyptian models available for a few specific features of nilotic scenes. The dwarf-like figures, battles with river animals, sex, and drinking and carousing. Um, So starting with the dwarf-like figures, the depiction of a faraway landscape populated at least in part by people with dwarfism evokes Greek and Roman legends of Pygmaeoi in Greek or Pygmae in Latin, short-statured dwarf-like tribes about whose actual existence there was much disagreement. People couldn't agree in antiquity about whether these folks were real or just fictional, Um, but they were imagined at least to live on the fringes of the inhabited world. And, I want to note here that modern English speakers draw a clear distinction between the word pygmy um, describing somebody from a short-statured ethnic group and dwarf describing somebody with a congenital condition that restricts their stature. Classical texts don't really make that distinction. So the Greek pygmyos, excuse me, pygmyos can describe both members of short-statured populations and individuals with dwarfism. And the Latin pygmyas generally describes tribes of short-statured people, but it's clear from Roman art, not just in Nilotic scenes, but other contexts too, that such Pygmai were imagined as physically resembling people with dwarfism. Um, These tribes of Pygmai were imagined to live in various distant lands, but they were particularly closely associated with Egypt, probably because, at least in part, of the actual importance of dwarfs in Egyptian art and religion people with dwarfism often appear in pharaonic Egyptian art as ritual practitioners, especially music, musicians or dancers, and some Egyptian gods, like Bess, were represented as dwarfs themselves. In the periods immediately prior to and contemporary with the Roman Empire, certain types of Egyptian art, especially small-scale statuary, depict dwarfs or pygmies in situations quite similar to those of Roman Nilotica. For example, fighting animals, having sex, drinking, or playing music or dancing. Turning to animal hunts, uh, in Roman nilotic scenes, the pygmy figures' battles with hippos and crocodiles have some resemblance to depictions of hippopotamus and crocodile hunts in Egyptian tombs of the Pharaonic period, but those tomb and temple images tend to be much more elegant and formal looking. In an Egyptian context, Such motifs represent the battle between order and chaos. Um, That said, the Roman images of pygmies fighting crocodiles actually have even closer parallels in terracotta and stone statuettes from late period and Greco-Roman Egypt, depicting dwarfs and dwarf deities standing on top of crocodiles. And uh, turning to sex drinking and carousing, stone and terracotta statuettes from Ptolemaic and Roman Egypt Found in both domestic and temple and tomb contexts often also frequently depict figures with dwarf-like proportions, drinking, playing music, dancing, or having sex. And these figurines often wear costumes and headgear that identify them as cult attendants or participants in religious festivals. So sometimes they wear lotus crowns that associate them with the god Harpocrates or particular costumes that uh, suggest their are worshipers of the goddess Isis. And the emphasis in these figurines on sexual activity and drinking may specifically recall something called the Techi festival, the festival of drunkenness at the start of the inundation season. This was a festival that celebrated the annual flood of the Nile, which brought fertility to the fields. Uh, agriculture in Egypt was made possible not by rain, but by the annual flooding of the river. And as a fertility festival, the Techi festivals were characterized by lots of wild revelry, sexual imagery, and heavy partying. We have Ptolemaic and Roman period hymns and ritual texts from Egypt that describe ribaldry, drinking, and sometimes even actual sex at these festivals. And there are erotic and banqueting scenes in some earlier tombs of the New Kingdom, going back to the Late Bronze Age, that probably also depict Tehi festivals. Some of these tomb paintings even depict people uh, throwing up from drinking too much at these festivals. So there actually are Egyptian precedents for some of those aspects of Nilotica that from a Roman perspective appear hardest to explain. And while some of those precedents, like reliefs from temples and tombs, employ a much more formal and decorous style than do the Roman images, that's not the case for the figurines, many of which are extremely sexually explicit and feature wildly exaggerated sexual organs. So, nilotic scenes do have some parallels in Egyptian art and culture, especially in relation to the so-called festivals of inebriation or keshi festivals. But... That raises the question, how would Roman artists or consumers have actually encountered these aspects of Egyptian culture? And I think one possibility comes from travel. There is literary evidence for elite Romans traveling to Egypt and even for established tourist itineraries for their visits. People from Egypt also traveled to Italy, especially the region Campania where Pompeii was located. The nearby city of Puteoli was a major hub for the Egyptian grain trade and ships came here from Alexandria carrying grain to Italy. There is some limited evidence for Egyptians living in the Bay of Naples. And earlier in the Hellenistic period, Campanian and Egyptian merchants interacted at other ports as well. For example, the Greek island of Delos, which also features one of the earliest known Nilotic mosaics. And some painters and mosaicists may also themselves have been mobile. Another possible means of transition, literary accounts. People in Italy could have read literary accounts of the Nile or of Egyptian culture. Historical, geographical, and literary writings on Egypt and its people were popular ever since the Greek historian Herodotus. Um, Herodotus and Strabo make allusions to debaucherous river festivals in Egypt, and several authors of the Roman imperial period refer to the Nile flood as the sexual union of Isis and Osiris, suggesting some awareness of the sexual themes associated in Egypt with Nile festivals. And there were also Greek translations of some Egyptian and literary texts sorry, Egyptian literary and religious texts, including at least one myth related to the inundation festivals, a story about a wandering goddess whose return to Egypt preceded the annual flood. Another possible means of encounter comes from religious practice. Some Egyptian gods, including Isis, were popular in first century Italy, and Isis had a temple in Pompeii, so temples might have formed another place where some Romans might encounter Egyptian beliefs or practices connected with the Nile. So those all are possibilities. But ultimately, the most direct way that most people in Italy would have encountered Egyptian imagery, including imagery related to the Nile inundation, would have been through imported consumer goods. Imagery related to that of nilotic scenes appears on a wide variety of portable consumer goods made in Ptolemaic and Roman Egypt, including bronze and terracotta figurines, lamps, amulets, glass and faience, vessels, and textiles. And a lot of those were popular export items. In some cases, we have evidence that craftsmen outside Egypt clearly drew on such objects as models. For example, Craftsmen on Hellenistic Delos, which as I mentioned was a trading port heavily frequented by Italian merchants, manufactured numerous ter- terracotta figurines that were inspired by Egyptian imagery, and a lot of them display themes that would later become common in Pompeian Nilotica, such as dwarf or pygmy figures, sexual imagery, and alcohol consumption. So we have objects of portable material culture depicting what's essentially nilotic motifs being consumed and manufactured throughout the Roman world. So Romans could have encountered Egyptian versions of nilotic motifs in many different contexts with widely varying implications. Some people could have had firsthand knowledge of nilotic festivals, either through personal involvement in cults derived from Egypt or through visits to Egypt, Others would have heard about such events secondhand or through literary sources, and still others, probably many more, would have encountered nilotic motifs through consumer goods, which might have many different places of production, consumption, and use. And people might have widely varying reasons for wanting such products, as well as equally varying interpretations of what their imagery meant. So the whole process is replete with opportunities for intercultural exchange, but it's also replete with opportunities for misunderstanding, reinterpretation, and generating new meanings. Somebody who buys a figurine that in Egypt might have evoked techie festivals wouldn't necessarily have known that that was the case. They might come up with their own imagined explanation for what this imagery meant. So a single object might have evoked many different associations. And in addition to that, um, Roman nilotic scenes clearly reference a lot of other cultural and visual precedents in addition to their Egyptian illusion. So, yes, they're drawing on Egyptian models, whether directly or indirectly, but they're also drawing on Greco-Roman models. Uh, Stylistically and formally, the handling of figures and landscape draws on Hellenistic and Roman conventions, Uh, Examples in statuary, painting, and other media show that when they wanted to, Roman artists were perfectly capable of emulating the conventions, proportions, and poses of pharaonic Egyptian art. But they don't do that in nilotic scenes. You don't see the pygmy figures of nilotic scenes posed in... um, the conventions of egyptian art with their bodies frontal and their faces in profile or anything else they're shown according to the conventions of greco-roman art Um, and the the brushwork when these appear in paintings rather than mosaics is loose and impressionistic in a way that recalls not egyptian art but other forms of roman landscape paintings so-called sacral idyllic paintings And some other elements of the iconography of Roman Nilotica, especially the representation of the pygmy figures with achondroplastic features and sometimes exaggerated sex organs, have parallels not only in Egyptian art, but also classical. There's a whole Greco-Roman tradition of representing dwarfs in this way, going back to the 5th century BCE, when Greek vase paintings start to depict pygmyoi with achondroplastic features and large phalluses. Um, In Greek art, the large phalluses and the exaggerated facial features of dwarfs or pygmies may allude to satyrs, the rowdy companions of the god Dionysus. And more broadly, the representation of the figures in nilotic scenes as physically uh, unusual draws at least in part on Hellenistic and Roman art, representing what modern scholars rather pejoratively call grotesque figures. There are also a lot of non-Egyptian parallels for sexual imagery, specifically in Roman gardens. For example, images of the god Priapus, um, who had a hugely exaggerated penis that was thought to ward off danger from people's houses and gardens. And Roman visual culture also provides a lot of depictions of non-nilotic dwarfs of pygmies. for example, you find uh, representations in some other Pompeian houses of Greek gods and heroes in pygmy form, or of scenes from daily life where the people are represented as pygmies. And um, there's no reason to think that those images have a connection to Egypt per se. Um, I think more persuasive is the argument of some scholars that those pygmy scenes are supposed to be comical, with the pygmies taking on the role of something like a modern cartoon character whose presence marks the scene as playful and humorous. Uh, There's also an argument that some scholars have made that Romans considered images of pygmies or dwarfs to be apotropaic, that is to ward away evil powers. And finally, real life people with dwarfism um, were sometimes used as entertainers at elite Roman banquets. So when wealthy people at Pompeii looked at images of carousing dwarfs, they may have been thinking less immediately of Egyptian rituals and more immediately of the sort of spectacles they were more familiar with. So all of this is to say, I don't think that Nilotic scenes are ultimately either Egyptian or Roman in their origins. They're the result of a complex synthesis of many different Egyptian, Greek, and Roman sources from many different time periods. So ultimately, attempts to explain Nilotic scenes through an exclusive focus on origins are insufficient. I don't think you can say, oh, well, the earliest versions of these things mean X, Y, and Z, and therefore they always mean X, Y, and Z. I think Roman artists were choosing eclectic- eclectically from many different sources of inspiration in a way that's also well-attested for their dealings with uh, Greek art. And that means too, that there wasn't just one culturally available meaning for nilotic and pygmy imagery. These images offered many different affordances. Depending on the perspective of the viewer, nilotic scenes could have reminded them of everything from Egyptian inundation festivals, to sacral idyllic landscapes, to social satire, to real life banquet entertainment. Um, And choosing within that range of available cultural associations would have depended partly on the background knowledge and interests of individual viewers. It also would have depended on context, the way that different settings frame the imagery people wouldn't have been encountering these paintings or mosaics in a vacuum. They were encountering them in specific architectural settings where the Egyptian landscapes appear juxtaposed with many other objects and images. And those larger assemblages would have potentially activated some of the available associations of these images while downplaying others. So for this reason, in the book, I look at a number of selected case studies where I think the assemblages of different domestic gardens are framing nylotic imagery in somewhat different ways.
0: So let's discuss that a little bit. Let's zero in on the Pompeian gardens. How does your data confirm the association, as you referred to it, of nylotic frescoes and mosaics with gardens, out, outdoor triclinia, additional dining spaces, and or water features? In your response, if you can, please address the diachronic interplay of sexual imagery garden and water and dining installations, entertainment, and viewer engagement?
1: Sure. So, nilotic scenes appear in a pretty wide range of settings at Roman sites, but they do appear to have a, an unusually strong association with domestic gardens. At Pompeii in particular, and I'm focusing on Pompeii for the fairly obvious reason that it's the best documented and best preserved site to look at this sort of thing, Um, There are 47 two-dimensional nilotic scenes, by which I mean largely frescoes and mosaics, from known contexts. And of those 47, four come from baths, three come from temples, including a temple of Isis, one comes from a tomb, and 39 come from houses. So the possible settings of these things are pretty varied. They can include baths, they can include tombs, but um, I think we do need to address the fact that the overwhelming majority, 83%, come from domestic contexts. And of those, uh, 36 nilotic scenes from domestic context at Pompeii are sufficiently well-documented that we know not only what house they came from, but also what room. And here again, the range of possible find spots is pretty broad and includes many different room types, but by far the most common is gardens. 18 of the 36, or 50%, were found in gardens, and the next most common location with six scenes, or 17%, was dining rooms, triclinia or biclinia. So garden contexts definitely predominate over other room types. After gardens and dining rooms, it just drops down to a couple of attestations in each category. So yeah, you occasionally find them in atria, for example, but not very often. Um, And the emphasis on gardens becomes even more pronounced if you move beyond simply listing fine spots to consider those rooms' interrelationships with other rooms, looking at the larger visual and spatial setting. Um, Of the 18 scenes that come from rooms other than gardens, a large majority of them come from rooms that look and open onto gardens. So, for example, you often find in Pompeian houses um, dining rooms that are open-faced with one side of the room leading onto the garden. So you can eat in this little dining room and you can look out onto the garden. So technically those are different rooms, but they're clearly designed as part of the same functional context. And um, uh, of 36 domestic nilotic scenes from secure contexts, 31, that's almost 90%, come from either gardens or rooms that immediately open onto gardens. So I think that is something that needs to be examined. Why should these things be associated with gardens in particular rather than other room types? And a lot of recent work on Roman art stresses the importance of decor or contextual appropriateness. The word's obviously related to our word decor, but uh, has a somewhat different meaning. Um, Romans expected images to be in some way appropriate to their surroundings. So that suggests that they found nilotic scenes appropriate to gardens in some reason for some reason. Why would that be? Well, in Roman houses, gardens are supposed to be spaces of um, what Latin describes as otium, or cultured relaxation, as opposed to negotium, or work, which went on in some other rooms. By evoking Egypt, which was a place that Romans culturally associated with luxury and easy living, nilotic scenes could have helped set a scene for relaxation. So that's probably one of the things that's going on here. There are also a number of parallels between nilotic images and their real-life environment. Both nilotic scenes and real Pompeian gardens confronted their viewer with lush environments filled with water and vegetation. Almost all of the gardens that contained nilotic scenes or were adjacent to nilotic scenes also had visible water features, which ran a gamut in scale from pretty modest cisterns to very large elaborate fountains and even miniature canals. And we've got to remember this is a fairly dry Mediterranean environment, water is a limited resource, so the use of water for non-essential display purposes like fountains would be a really effective way of showing off your wealth. Representations of the Nile, which was, among other things, one of the most famous water sources in the ancient world, would have helped reinforce people's perception of these gardens as lush, water-filled environments. And That would be an especially vivid parallel in the case of those gardens that had model canals. When you have paintings of the Nile adjacent to a little water channel, they would have seemed to make the painted Nile come to life in miniature in front of everyone. I think we can also go farther and look at the specific activities that took place in gardens and consider how those might have resonated with the imagery in Nilotic Scenes. Now, first class, you might think the typical behaviors of nilotic pygmies are pretty far removed from those of first century Pompeians. But if you set aside some of the more exotic indications of setting, essentially what these images depict are people banqueting outdoors by the water, listening to music, carousing, and performing rural cults. All of these were common activities in real life Roman gardens as well. So the painted landscapes and the real garden landscapes act as mirrors of each other, not precise mirrors. Uh, Hopefully you're not going to encounter an attacking crocodile in the middle of your nice Pompeii garden, Mm -hmm. but distorted mirrors that potentially comment on each other. And if we look more closely at some of those parallels, outdoor banqueting is one of the most common activities of the Pygmy of nilotic scenes. And in Pompeii, gardens were among other things, dining spaces. We have literary references to dining outdoors and gardens in good weather. A lot of gardens have permanent facilities like dining couches. Um, and in some gardens, excavators have found faunal remains, animal bones for meals that actually took place there. As I also mentioned, dining rooms were often located next to gardens so that people could look out on the greenery. Um, and uh, regarding uh, the music and dancing that often appear in nilotic scenes, Roman dinner parties often involved mealtime entertainment, which might include music, dancing, dramatic performances, or literary readings. So when nilotic scenes depict pygmai reclining, drinking, and listening to music in a lush, uh, watery environment, they're presenting their viewers with a scene that isn't just exotic, it's also paradoxically very close at hand because it's what they're probably doing as they look at this image. The foreign setting and the representation of the characters as Pygmayi are distancing, but the activities they're performing are in many ways familiar and even mirroring their viewers' activities. And uh, as for some of those more off color activities, um, what would people have made of the sex scenes? So well, Roman art and literature is full of evidence that people perceive banquets as potentially full of sexual tension. Um, Latin love poems talk about flirtation, jealousy, and lovers giving secret signals to each other at banquets. And a number of non-nilotic domestic wall paintings depict men and women flirting or kissing over dinner. So this was supposed to be a potentially sexually charged environment. But that said, any actual sex was supposed to occur afterwards in private, definitely not out in the open like in nilotic scenes. So the sexual activity in nilotic scenes is probably supposed to strike Roman viewers as comical, excessive, and inappropriate, but it also represents figures acting on impulses that banqueters might have themselves expected at least potentially to experience. So what's the target of the the humor here? Um, Such images may poke fun at the imagined other, whether that's Egyptians or Pygmaii, who Romans seem to have imagined as a rather different population from Egyptians. They didn't think of Egyptians as um, having dwarfism. This is a characteristic of tribes that they imagined to live elsewhere in the Nile. Um, But these images also poke fun, I think, at the viewer's own attempts to present themselves as refined, self-controlled diners. So they're at a dinner party, they're presumably trying to live up to social expectations. It could have defused tension and um, amused the guests to see uh, images that tweaked those conventions. So they wind up laughing at imagined others, yes, but also at themselves and at each other. So uh, when we put this all together, nilotic scenes at Pompeii seem to have pretty strong contextual associations with gardens, water, and dining. And those contexts would have constructed parallels between that which is depicted and that which is real. They then present a playful challenge to viewers, provoking them to consider their own social performance as banqueters. What type of social identity would the viewers of these images choose to project in response to the invitations and provocations of their setting? And the answer is left sometimes kind of open-ended. Are viewers supposed to identify with the carnival-esque exuberance of the Pygmai, or are they supposed to treat them as negative examples that illustrate what not to do when at a dinner party? Um, To some degree, the answer may be up to the viewers themselves. Whatever they actually do then becomes their response to and commentary on the imagery. And as I argue in the book, different domestic gardens sometimes frame nilotic scenes in ways that incline a viewer more towards one or the other response. Uh, for example, in one house, the Casa del Medico, the garden art pretty clearly frames the Pygmayi as objects of ridicule and what not to do. But in another house, the Casa del Efebo, there's much more room for a positive reading of the pygmayi and their activities. So again, I want to make a case for the importance of looking at specific contexts rather than trying to impose a one-size-fits-all interpretation.
0: So let's focus on uh, each one, each house in turn. Uh, how did the uh, frescoes from the garden triclinium of the Casa del Efebo contribute to an eclectic ensemble that also contained wall paintings, statuary, furniture, a vegetable plot, and water features that, in turn, you argue, generated prosperity and fertility within the home in a way that echoes the role of the real Nile within the broader empire. And if possible, in your response, uh, please address why the date of acquisition did not determine interactions within the broader assemblage.
1: So the Casa del Epibo Ensemble is the first case study I look at in the book. And I chose it because we have quite good records of the finds from Mayori's excavations in the 1920s. This is a large house Uh, much of whose plot was occupied by a spacious garden. And that garden, among other things, would have originally contained a triclinium, a built set of couches, three dining couches, with nilotic frescoes all along their sides. So the nilotic paintings are decorating a dining installation. There was a water channel that ran between those couches, and that originally flowed from an elaborate water fountain. So in between the painted Nile banks, you have an actual little model river. Um, This domestic canal led into a vegetable plot as evidenced by furrows and root cavities in the garden where it would have watered the vegetables. So it's ornamental, it's a a way of displaying water resources, but it's also serving a very practical end of um, watering this vegetable garden. The whole installation of the triclinium was covered by um, a trellis supported by four columns. And the garden also included an array of statuary, including representations of animals, uh, supernatural outdoor beings known as pans and satyrs, and a valuable bronze statue of a young man. There was also a domestic shrine and an altar, and an array of additional wall paintings besides the nilotic ones, most of which depicted other outdoor themes like Mars and Venus canoodling in an outdoor landscape or animals in a game game park. The nilotic frescoes on the triclinium depict a continuous frieze with examples of practically every motif that can be attested in Roman nilotic scenes. The river is in flood as shown by blooming lotuses and a figure irrigating fields Um, Egyptian flora and fauna are present, crocodiles, hippopotamus, ibises, palms, and lotuses, and the landscape is filled with religious activity. People are shown performing rituals at a temple of Isis, and the riverbanks are dotted with a whole series of additional sanctuaries, shrines, divine statues, and people making offerings. The people are mostly, though not all, shown as pygmite um, they recline in small groups along the river, drinking and listening to music, and two of the banqueters also go farther. One man and woman are shown having sex underneath a little canopy that resembles the real-life trellis that would have stood in the Casa del efabo garden. It's interesting to note that while many of the people in the frescoes are shown with features of dwarfism, that isn't the case for most of the people in the sex scene. They're shown with idealized proportions, with smaller heads and longer bodies. Sex scenes between characters depicted as pygmai are probably intended to look humorous to Roman viewers, but those with idealized participants like here might have also attracted some less ironic forms of appreciation. There aren't any overtly violent scenes with animals, but there are allusions to the animal fights that are common in other nilotic scenes. One man menaces a crocodile with a spear, and another crocodile approaches a group of banqueters. So how do these fit into the larger garden ensemble? Well, as in many other gardens, um, there are parallels between the activities shown on the fresco and their real life viewers. Outdoor banqueting and carousing. Well, the triclinium is itself designed for that. And also ritual performance. Most of the scholarship on uh, the Casa del Efebón Nilotica has historically focused on the banqueting and sex scenes, which seem most lurid and attention grabbing, but a much larger proportion of the painted space actually depicts religious activity at rural shrines. And the real life garden itself offered opportunities for ritual performance, a shrine and an altar. Um, so you have that mirroring that you see in a number of other gardens too. Um, but what's more, as I mentioned, the model Nile in this garden also has a practical role. Um, the canal flowing through the triclinium and made into a model Nile by the paintings around it, actually watered a vegetable plot. Now, In the real uh, Roman Empire, the real Nile had a crucial economic role to play. It's famously fertile banks were one of Rome's most important grain sources. And the importing of Egyptian grain was also important to the local economy around Pompeii, as much of this trade was handled at the nearby port, Puteoli. So in the Casa del Efebo garden, the model Nile plays a role that reproduces in miniature the role of the actual Nile within the Roman empire. Um, It fertilizes a real life food crop, generating prosperity and fertility within the home, just as the real Nile brought prosperity and fertility to the broader empire. So in this case, at least, the garden frames Nylotic imagery not just as transgressive or exotic, as we might assume on the basis of the imagery alone, the architectural and spatial setting of the garden actually appears to associate the Nile with the maintenance of domestic prosperity and by extension, order and stability. Um, And you asked me to speak to the dating. So this is an issue with most houses at Pompeii uh, They were destroyed by the volcano in 79 CE, but they weren't constructed then. Uh, The contents of most houses were assembled over the years and reflect material from multiple periods. In the case of this house, the garden appears to have been remodeled following a major earthquake in 62 CE, and stylistically, many of the structures in the garden appear to date from around then. But at least some of the structures are older. For example, the shrine niche is partly overlapped by a reservoir for the water that fed the fountain, so the reservoir must have been constructed later than the shrine. So... Not everything in the garden dates from exactly the same time period in terms of its first acquisition. Uh, That said, I would argue that if we want to understand how this assemblage is functioning in 79, it doesn't really matter exactly when each of the components was added because regardless of when they were commissioned, the interiors of Pompeian houses reflect not just the choices of their original owners, but also the choices of later owners. Even if they didn't commission all of the structures or artworks, later owners still made choices about retaining or replacing them. Um, And each introduction of new people, activities, and artifacts into a space would have effectively transformed that space. New people come up with their own interpretations of the objects around them, which might have been different from those of the original owners, etc. Regardless of whether or not the house owners in 79 had personally commissioned all of the material culture surrounding them, they still had to live with it and engage with the interactive environments that it created. So regardless of their production date, I would argue that all of the objects and images in Pompeian houses can also be seen as products of 79 CE because that represents the time of um, their reception of people's interaction with them as assemblages.
0: So let's address more evidence, uh, like the architecture, the paintings, and the interactive statuary in the Casa della Febo garden. How did all this evidence evoke a wide range of imagined landscapes, transforming the, the garden, as you've already alluded to, into a microcosm of the larger Roman world? And also, if you can, please address the interrelationship between the ensemble and the social performance of knowledge.
1: The art and artifacts from the garden didn't just allude to Egypt. Um, In fact, even more of them pointed to other locations within the Roman Empire, some near, some far. There are multiple allusions to Greek art of multiple periods, uh, which makes sense given the cultural prestige that Greek art commanded in Roman culture of this time. Uh, There was a bronze statue of a young man based on classical Greek models, um, a line of so-called Herm statues, which... um, feature heads on top of pillars and whose origins go back to the Greek archaic period. um, And a group of tray holding statuettes whose twisted exaggerated forms recall uh, precedents in Greek art of the Hellenistic period. There were also images with more specifically local residents. So the painting of Mars and Venus uh, depicts a goddess who had um, an important history of her own at Pompeii. Venus was the tutelary deity of Pompeii so she's she's kind of the patron of this local environment. And her presence reminds viewers that whatever other faraway scenes the garden might invoke, they're also still here at home in Pompeii. Um, but the worship of Venus also connects Pompeii to the broader empire. She became the tutelary deity of the city only after um, the Roman sack of Pompeii in 89 BCE turned it into a Roman colony. And as the mother of the legendary Aeneas, Venus was the ancestress of the Roman state itself and its first imperial family. So she can both evoke the specific city of Pompeii and its incorporation into the larger Roman world. So the imagery in the garden suggests um, references to Egypt, to Greece, to Rome, to Pompeii more specifically. And it also alludes to multiple kinds of landscape from wild to tamed. Statues of wild animals and supernatural beings associated with wild places like Pan and Satyrs suggest wildernesses beyond the city. Um, A painting of a game park on one of the garden walls suggests the taming of that wilderness and perhaps alludes to the extensive parks for which Hellenistic kings were famous. And the nilonic scenes depict an agricultural landscape, uh, since one of the pygmai is shown operating a water wheel to fertilize the fields. So the garden invites people to imagine themselves within a pretty broad range of landscapes, nearby and far away, wild and domestic. And um, uh, the domestic Nile is just one component of this larger ensemble. And I would suggest that the eclecticism of the garden, its allusion to all of these multiple places and periods would have served among other things, a social purpose. It would have enabled people visiting the garden, dining at the triclinium to show off their connoisseurship and their cultural cosmopolitanism. Um, The ability to talk intelligently about art was a highly valued sign of social prestige. It was one way that people demonstrated their membership in uh, an elite group. And the, uh, (coughs) excuse me, literary texts suggest that dinner conversation could involve discussion of the visual culture in one's immediate vicinity. So owning sculpture sculpture in various retrospective styles that allude to the past, whether it's Greek, Italian, or Egyptian, uh, would have helped the owner of this house present himself as somebody who really knew his stuff, somebody who was not just wealthy, but also sophisticated and knowledgeable. And I would suggest that Performance of cultural knowledge or interpretive ab- abilities in this garden might have addressed not only the quote unquote Greek looking art, but also potentially the Nilotic frieze, an interpretation of its iconography or an opportunity to expound on Egyptian customs relevant to it could have been other occasions for people here to try to display erudition. Um, classical literature presents Egypt as a land of esoteric knowledge and uh, much imperial period philosophical literature makes a big show of engaging with Egyptian and pseudo-Egyptian intellectual traditions. Um, Additionally, the Nile itself was viewed as a a marvel that was often discussed in works of natural philosophy. So um, whether they wanted to talk about Egyptian culture or environmental features of the Nile, the Nilotic frieze could have provided an opportunity for diners to show off their own cosmopolitanism and sophistication, and thus to um, perform socially within the society of first-century Pompeii.
0: Let's move to the Casa Casa del Medico. So, in the quoting you pseudo uh space within the courtyard of the Casa del Medico, what was the significance of sexual imagery and pygmy animal violence on the various sides of the west wall and south side of the east wall? And, and also, can you touch on the so-called lost animal scenes on the north wall and north side of the east wall?
1: Sure. So the Casa del Medico is another house at Pompeii that makes for an effective contrast in certain ways to the Casa del Efebo. Here again, nilotic scenes appear in a garden, but the framing and content of the imagery suggests very different implications. And in particular, place more emphasis on the violent and grotesque potential of nilotic scenes. So if you compare these two houses, I think it helps demonstrate the thematic variability of this imagery. Um, This is a smaller house with much less um, richly appointed material culture than the Casa del Efebo. The frescoes appear inside the courtyard of the house on the inner walls of an enclosed space that has been previously interpreted as a pool or basin, although on the basis of the original excavation reports, I argue it was more likely a planted garden space encircled by a water channel. Um, so again, you see nilotic scenes associated with gardens and water. Um, again, the depiction of the banks of the Nile immediately adjacent to a real-life water channel would have suggested a miniature nile within the courtyard. And again, there's an association with dining. In this case, the dining area isn't incorporated directly into the garden, but immediately adjacent to it, a triclinium or dining room that opens directly off the courtyard. Guests headed to the dining room would have first passed through the courtyard and seen the Nilotic frescoes. The garden area was encircled by a low wall broken by a door, and the low wall was painted with Three pygmy scenes, two of them nilotic, and three animal scenes. And the first thing a viewer is likely to notice about the nilotic scenes is how incredibly unusually gory they are. One of them depicts a violent battle between pygmy crocodiles, and hippopotami with gouts of blood flying, at least one mangled corpse floating on the water, and a hippo in the act of actually biting one of the pygmies in half. Not really the sort of thing we'd like to decorate our houses with today, but there you go. Uh, The other scene focuses primarily on over-the-top sexual imagery. As at the Casa del Efebo, a couple has public sex in the middle of an outdoor banquet. But in this case, the couple is not physically idealized. They, like the other figures around them, are shown as affected by a chondroplastic dwarfism. So to Roman audiences, they probably were supposed to read less as sexy than as humorous. Uh, Another couple, also with similar proportions, has sex on a boat. And off to the side of the scene violence shows up again. Another hippo attacks a couple of pygmy musicians biting one in half. Now, in the past uh, history of scholarship on Nilotica, scholars have often taken this violent imagery of these particular frescoes as typical of all Nilotic scenes. And this is partly because of preservation. These paintings were removed from the house and taken to the Naples Museum at an early date, so they now survive better than many other Nilotic scenes. And also their gruesome content fitted well with dominant theories about nilotic scenes in the 90s and early aughts, when scholars tended to interpret these images as representing derogatory Roman stereotypes of Egyptians. Um, there is a problem for that interpretation, which is that while Romans definitely had plenty of derogatory stereotypes about Egyptians, ancient texts present Pygmae as a different population than real Egyptians. Greeks and Romans thought Pygmies lived on the Nile, but they thought they were different from the regular population of Egypt. So I think the Pygmy of Nilotic scenes may be less making a point about real life Egypt and more framing the scenes as taking place in a sort of fantasy land version of the Nile where normal rules don't apply. Um, that said, the explicit violence of the Casa del Medico frescoes is actually pretty rare in Pompeii and Nilotica. We tend to assume this is just typical for these scenes, but it's really not. Out of forty seven Nilotic scenes from known contexts at Pompeii, only four depict graphic violence, and only three depict pygmies receiving what appear to be fatal injury, sorry, fatal injuries. Uh, the vast majority of nilotic scenes from known domestic contexts, 92% omit any direct depictions of pygmy animal violence. They might show pygmies reacting fearfully to animals or animals reacting fearfully to them, but graphic violence is actually only present in a small minority of these uh, images. And the sexual imagery in nilotic scenes also spans a pretty broad tonal spectrum with some frescoes depicting relatively idealized sex scenes as at the Casa del Efebo and others emphasizing the physical otherness of the figures as at the Casa del Medico. And the two options are about equally popular. So the prominent violence and grotesque sexuality at the Casa del Medico isn't just the default option for nilotic scenes. These features demonstrate the purposeful selection of some available nilotic motifs over others. Many nilotic pygmy scenes are devoid of either sex or violence, depicting innocuous images of rural religious practice or daily life. And in fact, about a third of them omit pygmies entirely and just show animals and plants on the Nile. So in order to understand what this violent and grotesque imagery is doing in the paintings, I argue we can't just look at the two nilotic frescoes in isolation. We also have to consider the other images in the courtyard, including the other pygmy scene and the animal scenes. And the animal scenes often get forgotten today because they were left in situ when the pygmy scenes were moved to the Naples Museum and now they've faded away. But originally they occupied just as much of the courtyard as the pygmy scenes. And we have 19th century descriptions of what they depicted they all showed predator-prey interactions. A lion chasing a deer, a tiger chasing a stag, and an ibis attacking a toad. So these images of violent predator-prey interactions would have echoed the pygmy's battles with river animals. Um, And then the third pygmy scene is something rather different, uh, often interpreted as an illustration of the so-called judgment of Solomon from the Bible. And uh, we can certainly talk about that too, if you would like.
0: Yes. Uh, what is your assessment of the so-called judgment of Solomon fresco on the south side of the East wall, and how did all of the frescoes, along with the social milieu of their viewers, interact as an ensemble? As an, an ensemble of, as you describe it, order over chaos within the functional garden as dining space. And then uh, in your response, can you provide evidence that the Casa uh, del Medico uh, occupied a lower point on the socioeconomic spectrum?
1: Yeah, so the Judgment of Solomon Fresco, as it's called, um, is the painting that has probably attracted most attention to the house ever since its excavation in 1882. People have been fascinated by this because it seems to depict a biblical story rather than a Greco-Roman one. There's also been some doubt, however, about whether that really is what it represents. And I tend to agree with the dissenters, although I'm a little bit agnostic about ultimately what story this is illustrating. The painting does show a judgment scene involving a baby. There are three figures, seemingly judges, who sit on a podium while a kneeling figure supplicates them. Meanwhile, a soldier grabs a knife and holds it above a baby on a table while a woman attempts to grab the the baby. All of the characters are shown as pygmies. And many observers have understandably thought that this illustrates the biblical story in which Solomon resolves a case of disputed parentage by threatening to cut the baby in half. But there are some features of the scene that don't seem to fit the canonical account of that story. For example, the kneeling figure can't be one of the two competing mothers as previous scholars have thought because it's clearly a male. Also, there seem to be three judges rather than one among other differences. And there's some evidence suggesting that other stories similar to the Solomon myth might have circulated outside a Judeo-Christian milieu. So it's hard to be certain, I think, whether viewers would necessarily have identified the story as specifically Jewish or Christian or identified it with any specific geographic or cultural setting. The setting of the fresco is ambiguous. The other two pygmy scenes are nilotic, So presumably take place in or near Egypt, but this one doesn't have any markers of geographical location. So what to do with this whole collection of pygmy and animal scenes? Um, I wanna look at them together rather than isolation. And as an ensemble, I would suggest that the frescoes present a range of perspectives on natural landscapes, human society, and the relationship between civilization and potentially dangerous nature. We often have a very positive view of nature in our society, but um, Roman conceptions of nature were often pretty different. And the wilderness was seen as something uh, to be feared, at least as much as to be desired. Um, The animal scenes depict a pretty grim state of nature, natural landscapes devoid of humans and totally dominated by violent predator-prey conflict. So the state of nature seems to be just things killing each other. And then on the West Wall, humans do appear in pygmy form, but they live a desperate, violent existence that resembles that of the animals in the other frescoes. The nilotic pygmies at this house, not everywhere, but at this house, are often naked or semi-naked, like the animals that they fight. And their main activities seem to be fighting wild beasts or indulging in unrestrained sex and juxtaposed with images of animals fighting each other, these nilotic pygmies might strike ancient viewers as just a few steps removed from the dangerous and primitive state of nature imagined by some Roman philosophers, such as Lucretius. The pygmies resemble Lucretius's characterization of primitive humans as unclothed, indiscriminately engaging in outdoor sex, and constantly struggling for survival with wild beasts. Um, So while the paintings do include monumental architecture and other features of uh, what modern anthropologists would call complex society, the Nilotic pygmies themselves appear to occupy a marginal role within this landscape. If you contrast that with the Casa del Efebo, there, the, the frescoes depict pygmies not just reveling and fighting, but in even greater numbers pursuing activities that were central to Roman conceptions of civilization, irrigating fields, spinning thread for cloth, acting as soldiers or guards or performing religious rituals. But we don't see any of that in the Casa del Medico nilotic scenes. They're just fighting and having unrestrained sex. Um, And their complete or partial nakedness further separates them both from their Pompeian viewers and from pygmies at some other houses like the Casa del Ephebo. So contrast that then with the judgment fresco, whether it depicts Solomon or some other wise judge or judges, It presents a scene of conflict and potential violence, the upraised knife over the baby, but the figures presented here are full participants in what Romans would have imagined as a civilized urban society. The judgment fresco includes almost no natural landscape features. Instead, we see the workings of a centralized government. We see judges handing out decisions, soldiers enforcing state power, and a backdrop of monumental architecture. And while the imagery doesn't really impose a geographic location, some features do evoke Roman institutions. The soldiers in the scene appear to wear Roman armor and the supplicating figure has close parallels in representations of people supplicating Roman state representatives. And rather than going naked, like most of the pygmies in the Nilotic scenes, the pygmies in this scene all wear either Greek clothing or Roman military costumes. So they seem to live in a very different kind of society. And as in the pygmy animal battles, the action in the judgment scene revolves around a threat of violence. But now the institutions of civil society are checking that violence. The soldier is raising up his knife and threatening to inflict the same gory death on the baby that hippos inflict on pygmies in the nilotic scenes, uh, cleaving them in two. But this time the blow doesn't land. The soldier is a representative of the state and he waits politely for the decision of judicial authority. And at least in the biblical story, and probably also any other variations that were in circulation, the result is a happy ending. The child lives on unharmed in the custody of the most appropriate parent. So taken together, what I think we have here is a series of images of civilization versus nature. And uh, the representation of the human characters as pygmies is probably supposed to cast the paintings as humorous or playful. I don't think people are supposed to look at these uh, frescoes and stroke their chin solemnly and say, oh, that's a very profound depiction of the <laughs> humans versus nature. I think they are supposed to find it funny, but humorous images are not any less freighted than any others with cultural assumptions, ideologies, and values. And so even as the frescoes provoked amusement, I think they would have reminded their viewers of what Roman culture presented as their proper place in the world. Um, And you mentioned the socioeconomic status of the house owners. So we don't really know much about the individuals who lived here. The house is today called the Casa del Medico, the house of the doctor, but that's based on a misidentification of the finds assemblage. We don't actually have any reason to think a doctor lived here. Um, But the people here definitely must have occupied a lower point of the socioeconomic spectrum than the owners of the large and well-furnished Casa del Efebo. The house plan is small and irregular. Many walls had minimal or no adornment beyond simple plaster. And the excavators didn't report any statuary. The garden also doesn't have the elaborate built structures or private water fountain of the Casa del Efebo. That said, within their seemingly more limited resources, the owners of this house, I think, are trying to create a domestic entertainment area that's structurally similar to the Casa del Efebo garden. You still have strong functional and visual links between garden space, dining, and water use. Um, And that may suggest that householders of different economic means might share similar concepts of a desirable house. In context, I think the frescoes make a statement about the homeowner's ability, whoever they were, to control their own world and impose order on the chaos of life. Um, As I discussed, I think the fresco sequence sets up a series of contrasts between wild, dangerous nature and stabilizing, protective civilization. So in Pompeii, one of the messages potentially available would be a reassuring one, as Roman citizens and inhabitants of a well-governed city people looking at these frescoes need not fear dangers like those afflicting the unfortunate Nilotic pygmies. This illustration of the benefits of order and authority could also reflect positively on the pater familias, um, head of the household and primary representative of hierarchical authority within the home. Um, Presumably, uh, the home owners would have hoped for guests' lived experience to itself demonstrate the difference between the painted scenes and reality Uh, with the real domestic uh, courtyard as a place of safety and relaxation rather than danger and violence. Um, And while the nilotic banquet is a wild cacophony of inappropriate and dangerous behavior, one presumes, at least, that the actual uh, meals in the Casa del Medico triclinium were somewhat more sedate affairs. It would be hard not to be. Um, So from the houseowner's perspective, these discrepancies between image and reality could have offered visible proof of the orderly, well-run nature of their own household.
0: So let's move to the Casa del Fano. Why did you select the human-free Nile Mosaic in the Casa del Fano as a case study in the uses of Nilescapes as marginalia, particularly given its position as a delineation of the threshold for the famed Alexander Mosaic in the uh, dining, etc. In addition, how did House... House inhabitants and guests interact with the mosaic assemblage as marginal monstra, from the Hellenistic to Roman periods.
1: Well, in the two houses we've looked at, the Casa del Efebo and Casa del Medico, we see nilotic imagery playing a central role in garden decorative ensembles. But many other nilescapes weren't centerpieces in that way. They were peripheral elements in larger compositions. And especially when nilotic scenes appear outside gardens, they're often smaller and less prominent occupying only a small portion of a wall whose uh, larger subject is something else. Uh, And even when nilotic scenes occupy more prominent visual positions, their frequent association with gardens still locates them in a space that was construed as the margin of household space. The garden is in the domus, but it's also not entirely of it. Um, So I wanted to explore why that's the case. How does the marginality of these images affect the way they interact with people? I don't wanna just assume that marginal equals forgettable or insignificant. I wanna look more carefully at how peripheral images serve as frames for larger scenes. So my case study here is the Casa del Fano. This is one of the largest houses of Pompeii, originally built in the Samnite period before the Roman conquest and occupied up until the eruption. And this house is perhaps best known for a famous artwork, the so-called Alexander Mosaic. This is a gigantic floor mosaic it was probably a copy of an earlier Hellenistic painting and that occupied a small room jutting off of a huge peristyle garden. The mosaic illustrates the victory of Alexander the Great over the Persian King Darius. And uh, chicken and fish bones in the drain of the little room show that it was used as a dining room. So once again, we're in a garden dining context, a little dining room that opens off of a big garden. And between the garden and the open-faced dining room, a nilotic floor mosaic forms the threshold of the room, So viewers had to step over this mosaic to go into the dining room and look at Alexander. This mosaic is one of the earliest nilotic scenes in the Mediterranean, probably early first century BCE, and possibly the earliest at Pompeii. It doesn't show any pygmies or any human figures at all, just the river itself and its characteristic plants, lotuses and reeds, and characteristic animals like hippos, crocodiles, ibises, etc. Many of the animals are shown battling each other. And some of the materials also reinforce associations with Egypt. Many of the tiles are made of faience imported from Egypt. So the Nile Mosaic here is a border for the larger and more elaborate Alexander Mosaic. It's not supposed to be the chief attraction here. It's just a subsidiary element for Alexander. Um, So if it primarily served to mediate viewers' encounters with the Alexander Mosaic, how did it actually affect those encounters? Um, the first thing I want to observe is that the Mosaic places emphasis not on Egypt as a culture, but Egypt as a place. There's no interest in humans or even any signs of human presence like buildings or boats or fields. We just get the river and its wild creatures, and they are wild rather than even being domesticated animals. So, visitors to the house might have had all kinds of opinions about Egyptian society or culture, but this Mosaic isn't really trying to engage with those opinions. Um, It's just uh, presenting the river itself, the place. And in context, I think the Nile mosaic functions partly as a geographic marker recalling Alexander's eastern conquests. The aggressive interactions of the Egyptian animals echo the encounter of Alexander and Darius fighting in the larger mosaic. So both of the two mosaics explore violent conflict in both the human and the animal spheres. And the juxtaposition of Alexander with an image of Egypt suggests some additional associations with Alexander's career. It was in Egypt that he was declared to be the son of a God. It was in Egypt that he founded the city Alexandria that came to embody Roman images of Hellenistic sophistication. And so I think the Nile Mosaic evokes Egypt primarily as an attribute of Alexander. But then um, once there, the embodied viewing of the two mosaics, constructs a relationship between the viewer and Alexander himself. Uh, Both of the mosaics were located on the floor. So you had to walk over them to interact with them. And to enter the room and examine the Alexander mosaic, you first have to step across the Nile mosaic in effect to cross the Nile. So in miniature, you leave the Mediterranean as manifest in the real Pompeian garden outside the room. You travel through Egypt and you arrive at a battleground deep in the Persian empire. So the viewer is retracing the journey and implicitly stepping into the role of Alexander himself. And other aspects of the assemblage identify the owner of the house with Alexander. There's a straight line of sight from the outside door to the room with the Alexander mosaic. And that line of sight would have crossed the pater familia seated in his office, the tablinum, uh, creating a sort of visual rhyme between the Macedonian king and this elite Pompeian guy. So even though the Nile Mosaic doesn't depict Egyptian culture, I think it has pretty uh, profound cultural implications in that the assemblage of mosaics asserts its owner's Alexander-like claim to possession, at least in miniature, of the Hellenistic East. Uh, In the first century BCE, this possession would have suggested not only identification with Alexander, but also embrace of the pan-Mediterranean, pan-Near Eastern society that his conquests initiated. So the mosaics are asserting that the house owner belongs in an international group of cosmopolitan elites. Later, by the first century CE, there's a changed political context. The existence of a Roman emperor significantly limits the degree to which private individuals can claim heroic or kingly status, but internationalizing images like this one could now take on a different significance as allusions to the expanse of the Roman empire. Um, So uh, I would say that the impact of the Nile Mosaic on viewers is inextricable from its own marginality, not only its location on the periphery of the Alexander Mosaic, but also its role as a threshold between the peristyle garden and the more intimate space of the smaller dining room.
0: Can you explain and substantiate your claim that the use of domestic water features like uh, Bacchic and Egyptian statues and Egyptian dwarf-like statuettes within Pompeian homes, such as those in uh, the Garden B and Portico A of the Casa de Acceptus a Jujodia, demonstrate the, the quoting you, use or avoidance of Pharaonizing stylistic conventions.
1: Sure, so this house, the Casa de Acceptus a Jujodia, gives us a chance to look at another kind of nilotic imagery in the household, not just 2D scenes and painting or mosaic, but 3D imagery. And 3D... Three-dimensional Aegyptiaca in garden contexts can take many forms, Nile-like canals, statuettes in various media, and shrines dedicated to Egyptian deities. I'm not trying to examine any and every form of Aegyptiaca, but specifically representations of Egyptian landscapes. Um, But some 3D... Artifacts in Pompeian gardens form equivalents of the nilotic landscapes that we find in frescoes or mosaics. These include statuettes of nilotic river animals, statuettes of dwarfs or pygmies, and certain water features. And in isolation, these wouldn't necessarily always evoke Egypt. But when they're found together, they create an assemblage that looks awfully like a nilotic scene. And uh, the Casa di Exceptus a Euhodia contains one such assemblage. Among other things, the garden... Uh, held multiple Egyptian-style statuettes, including three depicting dwarf-like or pygmy-like beings, statuettes of river animals, and at least one fountain. So taken together, you get a watery, animal-filled landscape inhabited by beings very like nilotic pygmite. And the garden also contained an outdoor triclinium for dining. So it's a scene kind of familiar from what we've seen in some of these other houses. Regarding the issue of um, I was interested in the question of why historically scholars have not put garden statuettes like those from this house in dialogue with the nilotic scenes that they resemble. Um, and this is partly because there's a tradition at Pompeii and in the Mediterranean generally of studying domestic artifacts according to object category. So all the frescoes together, all the faiences together, etc., rather than as assemblages. But I think it's also because of style. The 2D nilotic scenes depict Egyptian subjects, but they're not in Egyptian style. They're in an impressionistic, sketchy style, typical of Roman landscape painting when they are paintings. And when they're mosaics, they follow conventions derived from Hellenistic mosaic production. Mosaic production was itself a practice that originated in the Greek world, not indigenous Egypt. But small-scale statuary depicting Egyptian themes often does employ Egyptian style. So Uh, Two faience statuettes of the Egyptian dwarf god Bess at the Casa de Acceptus Eupodia have the same posture, proportions, and conventions that would have been used to depict him in Egypt. One of these seems to actually be an Egyptian import while the other is locally made. Um, There's also a marble herm that depicts a man wearing a pharaonic crown, uh, which emulates certain stylistic features of pharaonic art. Uh, So why this difference in conventions? Why would we find people using Egyptian style for 3D statuettes, but not nilotic frescoes or mosaics? I think a lot of it has to do with the relative portability of the kinds of Egyptian material culture that made a trip to Italy and were thus visible to Roman craftsmen. Statuettes were relatively small and portable. So they were a lot better fitted to long distance trade than were enormous wall reliefs. Um, There is an Egyptian tradition of landscape art but it's generally found on monumental immovable media, such as temple or tomb walls, rather hard to just pick up and carry over to Italy. But private consumers in Italy did acquire real Egyptian sculpture, um, imported Egyptian statuary was also displayed in public locations, including sanctuaries and imperial dedications. So as a result, many first century Italians probably had some basic familiarity with what Egyptian sculpture looked like. Um, they could recognize some key stylistic features and Italian sculptures could, sculptors could emulate those features. So, Pharaonizing styles appear in garden statuary, I think, partly because many of those statuette, statuettes were themselves Egyptian imports or inspired by imported objects.
0: So, what are crucial obstacles in constructing an Isaic identity for the first century CE, conceptual and evidentiary? And what evidence suggests that the Egyptians' Bacchic and Pompeian statuary of Garden B in the Casa uh, de Acceptus e Hujodia appears entirely compatible with other, which are not solely Isaac Spectrum, Pompeians' engagement with similar images.
1: Well, the Egyptian goddess Isis was popular in the Roman Empire at this point. Her worship had become international in the Hellenistic period, and by the first century, she was totally accepted into the Roman pantheon as an official deity who even received imperial patronage. And one of the longstanding debates about domestic Egyptiaca has to do with Isis cult. Was there a relationship of some kind between worshiping Isis and wanting to own Egyptian-looking objects? In the early 20th century, there was a tendency to view all Aegyptiaca through the lens of Isis cult and to assume that anybody who had something Egyptian looking in their house was an Isis worshiper. Since the late 20th century, that model has been thoroughly demolished, but the question still remains, did Isis worshippers in any way have a different relationship to Egyptian looking material culture than did other Romans? And some recent scholarship actually flips older assumptions in asserting that worshiping Isis would make a person less likely to want to decorate their garden in Egyptian style. One recent publication asserts that, uh, and I quote, a serious adherent of the ISIS cult would not fool about with Egypt as exotic garden display element. But, (laughs) um, such a statement leaves the category of serious adherent undefined and makes the assumption that whatever serious adherence is, it's incompatible with other uses of Egyptian motifs to convey playfulness or luxury or exoticism. Um, a lot of the debate about domestic Egyptiaca has presumed a mutually exclusive relationship between religious and decorative functions. So Egyptian themes and garden statuary have been interpreted either as expressions of an Isiac religious identity or as examples of non-religious exoticizing decoration. I argue we don't have to make such a binary choice. Ancient consumers didn't make the same distinctions we do between religious and decorative objects. This is a society that doesn't really have what we understand as a religious versus secular divide. So the same objects could easily serve both purposes. And I also argue that we've overestimated the degree to which ISIS worshipers formed a meaningful self-identified group in antiquity. There was no single organization that a person had to join to worship ISIS, and people didn't consider her worship to constitute an independent religion in modern terms. Her worship was perfectly compatible with that of the rest of the Greco-Roman pantheon. People could choose, in some cases, to be initiated into mysteries of Isis, but there wasn't any requirement to do so before worshipping her, and there's actually no direct evidence for the practice of mysteries or initiations at the Isis Temple of Pompeii. So we should be careful about treating Isis worshippers as a monolithic group, or assuming that they would have one single set of attitudes about Egyptian-style statuary or anything else. I argue that it's better to think of ISIS worship as a spectrum of practices and beliefs rather than a black and white distinction between maximally engaged, obsessive, gung-ho ISIACs and totally non-participating non-ISIACs. So I looked at the Casa de Acceptus a. partly because it makes a good test case for examining how ISIS worship interacts with ownership of domestic Egyptiaca there's a lararium or domestic shrine inside this house that contains a painting of Isis. So it seems that at least some members of this household were in some degree, at least Isis worshippers. But when we look at the way they're using Egyptian or Egyptian style material culture in their garden, it's very similar to what we see at the other houses that lack such evidence for Isis cult. Um, we find Egyptian looking objects associated with Bacchic imagery, uh, representations of Dionysus and Silenus and of the Seder, uh, which was also the case at the Casa del Efebo. Bacchic imagery also appeared. Um, the garden of the Casa de Acceptus a Euhodia presents a culturally diverse mix of materials and styles, um, uh, regional, and, regional and temporal styles alluding to antecedents, both Greek, archaic through Hellenistic, and Egyptian, pharaonic and Ptolemaic. Um, so what we have is um, a materially, stylistically, and iconographically eclectic garden that's pretty typical of first-century Pompeian domestic contexts. The evocation of a Nilotic landscape in the midst of all of this, and the juxtaposition of Egyptian imagery with a range of other visual and cultural references, is very much in keeping with what we see at the Casa del Efebo, Casa del Medico, Casa del Fano, etc. Uh, And again, nilotic imagery appears in a garden setting associated with dining, water, and social display. So I think this house suggests continuity rather than discontinuity between the domestic material culture of Isis worshippers and other Romans. So I think we need to back away from trying to isolate any kind of material culture signature for Isiac households, or for that matter, identifying some forms of Egyptiaca as incompatible with Isiac practice. It looks more like those Pompeians who worshipped Isis in whatever capacity and to whatever degree used domestic Egyptiaca in ways essentially similar to their neighbors.
0: So how did such assemblages in Pompeii, Hadrian's Canopus, and elsewhere represent the Domus Orbis for individual viewers and collective audiences, especially, especially given the notable absence of images of the empire west of Italy? Also, in the final analysis, how does your study advance the notion of Roman retrospective art?
1: Well, I conclude the book by presenting the villa of the emperor Hadrian as an example of what happens after Pompeii. So where all of those developments that were already visible in the houses of 79 CE Pompeii wind up leading. And about 50 years after the destruction of Pompeii, Hadrian's villa constructs an image of the Roman Empire where Egypt appears alongside Greece as an illustrious cultural ancestor of Rome. Among other things, his villa features a huge canal that reproduces on a grand scale the little domestic canals we saw in the gardens of Pompeian houses, like the Casa del Efebo. Sculpture on the banks celebrated the broad expanse of the empire, evoking Egypt with a crocodile statue and a statue of the Nile god, as well as Italy and the Greek-speaking provinces of Achaia and Asia. Although the scale of this ensemble is a lot greater than anything at Pompeii, The basic components are familiar from the houses we've seen. A prominent water feature located within a planted garden, associated with an outdoor dining installation, and decorated with an eclectic assemblage of material culture alluding to Egyptian, Greek, and Italian styles, themes, and landscapes. The use of Greek and Greek-looking material culture to legitimize Roman rule was by Hadrian's time an ancient practice, and imperial uses of Egyptian-looking material culture go back to the reign of the first emperor, Augustus, who displayed Egyptian imagery, such as an imported obelisk, to celebrate his conquest of Egypt. But starting in the first century and coming to full fruition under Hadrian, we see something different from the use of Egyptian imagery just to celebrate conquest. We see the invocation of Egypt as a valued contributor to the shared prosperity of the empire. And by representing Egypt together with Greek culture as foundational to the Roman state, Hadrian was building on earlier imperial precedents, but the closest parallels for the nilotic imagery at his villa come from private, domestic material culture. That's a trajectory that upends standard, top-down narratives of cultural change. We usually assume emulation goes down the socioeconomic ladder, not up. But in the case of nilotic imagery, it's popular first with private citizens and only later with emperors. And on the Domus as Orbis. Well, I think these Pompeian houses give us an opportunity to investigate what the Roman Empire really meant for people who lived in it. The empire was created by conquest, not just of Egypt and other provinces, but also of Italy. Pompey was sacked by Rome in the first century BCE. So the establishment of empire took place as a result of military and political developments, But the lived experience of then actually being in this empire wasn't just about war or politics. It was also about the material culture of daily life, the dwelling practices and domestic objects that made up people's everyday experience. And by using and displaying objects that pointed to the breadth of empire, people created connections between themselves and that wider world. Roman literature describes... Rome as a microcosm of its whole empire, filled with people, monuments, artworks, and trade goods from all over the known world. The poet Ovid says that the extent of the city, Urbis, has become identical with the world, Orbis. So I suggest that even as the Urbs became the Orbis in Rome, private citizens in Pompeii were also trying to turn the Domus, or house, into a miniature Orbis. In each of the houses that I look at in the book, I Agyptiaca shared space with objects and images recalling other regions of the Roman world. Pompeian house owners might have wanted to turn their gardens into the banks of the Nile, but they also wanted to turn them into gymnasia, evocative of Greek learning, parks that were called the estates of eastern kings, and admittedly kind of tame-looking versions of wildernesses suitable for roving satyrs, pans, and other uncanny beings. The visual culture of Roman gardens assimilates them to all sorts of outdoor landscapes, pastoral, mythological, royal, agricultural, wild, Italian, Greek, and Egyptian. The domestic garden is in the heart of the Domus, but it also becomes a way for people to bring the wider world into the Domus, to literally domesticate empire. And yet not as visible in Pompeian gardens, as you pointed out, are images of the empire west of Italy. Um, Raw materials, foods, drinks, and slaves from Western provinces were definitely highly valued luxury goods. But people in Pompeii and and, uh, in Italy, perhaps more broadly, seem to have been less interested in stylistic or iconographic allusions to those provinces. Put differently, people in Pompeii may have been collecting Greek and Egyptian-style artworks, but they weren't collecting Celtic metalwork or wall paintings of Roman Britain. When it came to art and what we might call high culture, Romans thought the Eastern half of the empire was especially prestigious. And you can see this outside of houses too, in the kinds of foreign monuments that emperors put on public display in Rome. Um, These provinces corresponded to the Greek half of the empire, Greek speaking, culturally uh, Hellenized in certain ways, but the material culture in question didn't come from exclusively Greek backgrounds, as we see in the use of Egyptian material culture and also, to a lesser degree, Roman emulation of Persian, Jewish, and Near Eastern motifs. These, especially Greece and Egypt, were cultures that Romans viewed as either cultural ancestors or co-participants in a sort of shared international high culture. Romans associated them with great age, wealth, and knowledge. As a result, material culture that came from the Eastern Empire, or alluded to it, was good for representing Roman ideas of luxury, relaxation, cosmopolitanism, and sophistication. And it's, of course, well known that the Romans emulated Greek art of many different periods and styles, that they created what some scholars call retrospective art that makes intentional allusions to the Greek past and its prestige. I want to make a case for the inclusion of Egypt within Roman classicism. And I use the term classicism in Yash Elsner's extended sense of uh, quoting Elsner, emulation of any earlier set of visual styles, forms, or iconographies, which in the very fact of their being borrowed, are established as in some sense canonical or classic, end quote. Now, I'm not proposing that all forms of Roman classicism were identical, or that Egyptian visual culture was interchangeable with Greek visual culture. That's definitely not the case, and the histories of Roman-Egyptian and Roman-Greek interactions were very different. But the popularity of Egyptian landscapes, styles, and objects in Italian households and the frequent association of such aegyptiaca with visual allusions to various forms of Greek culture suggest a more prominent role for Egypt than we often acknowledge when writing about Roman retrospective art. Roman attitudes toward Egypt and Egyptians were complex. Like many aspects of Greek culture, Egyptian culture could attract criticism in some Roman contexts and admiration in others. Latin literature simply certainly offers plenty of negative stereotypes about Egyptians, for example, as debauched, untrustworthy, and worshippers of weird-looking animal gods, uh, as Romans saw it at least. But Roman literature also inherited earlier Greek perceptions of Egyptians as wise, pious, skilled in medicine and the arts, and adept in many different forms of knowledge. The resulting image of Egyptians as intelligible, knowledge, intelligent, knowledgeable, and sophisticated, but also potentially tricky and elusive morals, displays a lot of overlap with Roman stereotypes of Greeks. Also on the relationship between Egypt and Greece and Roman thought, I think we need to remember that the Egypt Rome conquered in 30 BCE was also one of the great Greek states of the Eastern Mediterranean. Egypt at the time of the Roman conquest had been subjected to three centuries of Greco-Macedonian rule that created extensive interactions between Greek and Egyptian people and practices within Egypt. And the capital, Alexandria, was widely perceived as one of the epicenters of Greek culture in the Mediterranean. So when Rome conquered Egypt, that event was also the final culmination of Rome's conquest of the Hellenistic Greek world. So the historical and cultural circumstances of Ptolemaic Egypt may have encouraged some Romans to associate Egyptian and Greek culture in certain ways. For people who lived in first century Pompeii, visual allusions to what they imagined as Eastern culture gave them an opportunity to show off not just their wealth, but also their education and sophistication. Um, Roman ideas of sophistication had long placed a lot of emphasis on knowledge of Greek culture, and the evidence of Pompeian houses suggests that by this time, Late first century, Egyptian culture, at least as Romans imagined it, could play a similar role. And ultimately, I would argue that this use of exotic imagery in domestic contexts had, had consequences for how people experienced the empire. On one level, the association of Nilotic imagery with liminal spaces in the house, like gardens, reinforces perceptions of Egypt as an exotic otherworld, a land of fantasy and danger. But even as domestic visual culture represents Egyptian landscapes as distant and fantastic, that visual culture is itself inserting those landscapes into the everyday life of the house. So what used to be exotic imagery becomes, over time, commonplace, familiar, and literally domesticized. And then a few generations later, we see the results at Hadrian's Villa, where Egyptian imagery appears as the opposite of chaotic or dangerous forces, but is actually an embodiment of Roman order, peace, and prosperity. So in the final analysis, representations of Egyptian landscapes and Pompeian houses are ultimately testaments to the power and agency of domestic material culture. The objects and images with which Pompeians shared their homes weren't just illustrations to discourses on identity that really took place in some political or literary sphere and not in the house. I think material culture afforded people another and equally important sphere in which to negotiate their relationships with the wider world. On one level, domestic material culture enabled human agency. It provided a tool for people to use in their own social performance and self-presentation. But it also wielded a form of agency over its users. The Egyptian landscapes that I look at in this book were part of the everyday experience of the people who shared their houses. They confronted these individuals on a daily basis, demanding engagement with the imagined Egypt they constructed and inviting people to engage with all of the tensions and questions that such images raised. So these images provide an opportunity for people to reflect on the relationships between reality and representation, foreign and familiar an individual and empire. And in so doing, they asserted a vital role for Egypt in the Roman world.
0: So I have one uh, final question. What can we expect from you next? Are you going on a vacation? Uh, so you're on sabbatical. Are you on, a, are you engaged in another project? What's next for you?
1: Ah, oh, well, what's next is back to Pompeii for a different project. I'm now uh, involved in co-directing an excavation at a different Pompeian house. Um, no Egyptian imagery this time, but an opportunity to look uh, at material culture within the household and um, to get some new data on uh, what everyday life was like at Pompeii. So, this is the uh, Casa della Regina Carolina project, and uh, we're having our second field season in just about a month. So, I will tell what we will find.
0: All right. Thank you so much. Hope you keep us in mind for your next project.
1: Thanks so much for having me on the show.